we don't all start at the same position. There are systemic forces to do with race and class which really hamper children and adults' journey. And unless we acknowledge those, we're not really ever going to tackle anything because we just keep looking at the results. You know, everything is about evidence and that evidence is always about pupils outcomes well they won't change if we don't start by looking at where do the does the injustice start welcome to rethinking education education's critical friend hello listeners and welcome to episode 17 of the Rethinking Education podcast. I'm particularly excited to bring you this episode because today's guest is one of the main reasons I started this podcast. But before I introduce her, a couple of brief notices, if I may. Firstly, you may have noticed some unusual activity on this podcast channel recently. The last thing to be published was not a podcast, but a recording of the first ever Rethinking Education Campfire Conversation. As you may be aware, if you've listened to previous episodes, a really quite lovely, life-affirming online community has grown up around this podcast, the Rethinking Education Mighty Network. Through this network, I've met lots of incredible people who have many important things to say and fascinating perspectives to share. Somebody described it recently as being like a bat signal for innovative educators, and I think that's true. In just a few short months, I've heard about so much innovative practice happening here in the UK, as well as around the world, and I get the sense that there are lots more people out there who are quietly, creatively carving their own paths. More on this shortly. So, in an attempt to bring more people into the Rethinking Education conversation, including the voices of young people wherever possible, we've decided to set up these campfire conversations. As you may have noticed, the Rethinking Education podcast tends to feature quite long, in-depth, planned conversations, usually with individual guests. To contrast with this, campfire conversations are more spontaneous, live-streamed group conversations which will run alongside the podcast. When we first floated this idea on Twitter, we were deluged with responses from people who want to take part in these conversations and with recommendations for people whose voices you would like to see included. So we now have a long and ever-growing list of people queuing patiently to join us by the campfire, marshmallows in hand, and we'll be working our way through that list in the weeks and months ahead, bringing more and more people into the conversation as we think through the detail of how we might rethink and reform education in such a way as to bring about a more harmonious, less hair-raising state of world affairs. Campfire Conversations are live-streamed every other Saturday at 12 noon UK time, and the next one is this coming Saturday, the 8th of May 2021. This week we'll be joined by two special guests, Kulvan Atwal, a friend of the podcast and former guest who's also name-checked in today's episode. And if you haven't listened to the episode with Kulvan yet, I urge you to do so at the next available opportunity. I'm also delighted that we'll be joined this week by Lottie Cook from Pupil Power, a community of young people working to rethink and reshape education from the ground up. Lottie recently wrote a brilliant short article for the Innovate Journal outlining her vision for an education system fit for the 21st century, which I'll link to in the show notes. Some of Lottie's ideas, including the need for a more diverse, less Eurocentric curriculum, feature heavily in today's episode, by the way. 
Because Campfire Conversations are live streamed, we're able to have people commenting and feeding ideas, questions and observations into the main conversation. We're also looking at using other platforms in future so that we can bring even more people into these conversations. If you would like to join us live this Saturday, you need to join the Rethinking Education Mighty Network. You can do so by visiting rethinking-education.mn.co or by downloading the Mighty Networks app and searching for Rethinking Education. Speaking of the bat signal, the next episode of the Rethinking Education podcast will feature a conversation with four incredible women, three of whom I've met through the Mighty Network or through the podcast, who've been rethinking education in really interesting ways in recent years. So keep your eye out for that one. And so to today's guest. Nahida Maharasingham is the head teacher of Rathfern Primary School in London, the leader of the Rathfern Teacher Research Network, and a local leader of education, or an LLE. I first met Nahida in 2018 through my work as a programs leader at the UCL Institute of Education, and I've been working with Rathfern Primary School in a range of ways ever since. Rathfern is an absolutely remarkable school for a range of reasons, but really for the way in which, as a community, they are laser-focused on disrupting the trajectory of disadvantaged pupils. And as you'll soon discover when we get into this conversation, Nahida is a remarkable leader. Everything she does is driven by this incredibly strong sense of moral purpose, as well as a burning sense of injustice at the social and economic inequality that we see all around us, the UK being one of the most unequal countries in the developed world. Whenever I spend time with Nahida, I always come away with a sense that I would really have liked to speak to her for much longer. And I also think that people should hear what she has to say. And so the idea of the Rethinking Education podcast was born. If I recall correctly, I first gave voice to this idea in conversation with Nahida about a year ago, which became as much as a surprise to me as it did to her. So, if you've been spending lots of time listening to these podcasts of late, which a growing number of people seem to be doing, to my absolute surprise and delight, it's all Nahida's fault. I hope you enjoy the show. Nahida Mahara Singham, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Hello. Nice to be here. Surprised, but happy to be here. <laughs> well, I'm not so surprised because, um, as you may be aware, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but but you are one of the main reasons that I set up this podcast because I was in, meeting lots of interesting people through my work. And I was just thinking, A, partly for selfish reasons, because it would be difficult for me to suggest, oh, let's have a three-hour chat sometime because you're really busy. So the podcast is in some ways a ruse that just allows me to have like in-depth conversations with really interesting people. But I just think that so much of the work that you do is you know, really impressive and the journey that you've been on at Rathfern. And I, I'm really keen to, to share that with other people so that people can hear about what it is that, that goes on there. Um, so I'm really looking forward to getting stuck in. 
Let's begin with Rathfern. Um, we'll, 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 we'll talk later about your sort of, you know, your life and, and what, what came before this, this, you know, this journey that you've been on with, with this school. But let's start here. Um, so can you take us back to the beginning of your journey to Rathfern? This was your first headship, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It, it is my first head, first and only, it seems, headship at the moment anyway. Um, yeah, so I've been here 13 14 years so the school had so we're based in Catford in southeast London um, we're a Lewisham school I'm very proud of that the Battle of Lewisham and all that um, and I had worked prior to being a head I was a deputy head in Lewisham as well um, and it was a real surprise to me that I got the headship because my son was going off to secondary school and I thought, well, what shall I do? I could stay because I was still loving what I was doing. Um, decided to just apply for a headship because I just completed the MPQH, which I hadn't enjoyed, actually. I didn't really feel I learnt very much from it. Um, so I just thought, throw caution to the wind, have a go, and bizarrely, got the job. Um, the school, um, and I understood why when I got here, um, the school had been in special measures um, and had just got out, though the local authority didn't believe it should have got out of special measures. There was a bit of game playing going on for it to get out. So there was a, a huge need for um, change and deep love, I would say, in the school, um, especially for the children and the community. Um, so there were huge. It was a huge task uh, ahead of me. Um, there was a lot of anger in the parents and the children, and I think there had been a lack of leadership, um, which meant that teachers' expectations really needed to be addressed and yeah so it was pretty chaotic yeah okay so just to go back to something that you mentioned there I just looked it up because I've not heard of the battle of Lewisham previously Mm. would you mind just to share a little bit about what that was what happened there because people might not be aware so it's a really important point about Lewisham that it was a point uh, where there was uh, an NF national front march and the people of Lewisham stood up and there was a um, battle, and the, basically the racists were driven out of Lewisham. So uh, we do study it in our curriculum in year five because we're very much about looking at resistance generally because um, we believe that educating for resistance is a really important part of our work, but also looking at um, British resistance to whether that's sexism, racism is a really important part of our work. Um, so, yeah, it's a really powerful moment in history for Lewisham. And it's, you know, it happened in the 70s. So people here um, in our community remember it. Um, you know, I wasn't living in London at the time, but I'm really proud of Lewisham and what Lewisham did to stand up to racism. 
Yeah, it's incredible. So I'm just looking at it up on Wikipedia. So it says 500 members of the National Front attempted to march from New Cross to Lewisham, and they were met by around 4,000 people. And like you say, there was there was a battle. That, that, you know, there was um, violence ensued, and as you say, the racists were driven out. Um, and so, so can you paint a bit of a picture just to set the scene of like what what? Because I'm I'm not from London. I lived there a while ago, but I don't really know much about the, about the local geography. So could you explain a little? bit about Catford and Lewisham and what, what the what the area is like. Okay, so it is changing um, because, you know, as Dorling would say, London is being gentrified, um, not in my school. So my school is not very much. That's not true. There is gentrification happening. Um, but essentially, we're about 60, 70, 65 plus percent uh, BME with our biggest um community is black caribbean then black african and then a whole sort of range of asian um that's chinese indian subcontinent um community um we have got uh, eastern european children and white british is our smallest uh community but that's changed slightly. So we've got more white British children coming, but we've got more white British from a different social economic group. So we've always had white working class community. And by that, I mean not white working class as in people who define themselves as white working class, but white working class because they are free school meals. There's a very important distinction. Right. Thank you. Okay. And so you, when you, so you joined the school as a, as a head, it was 13 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, and you said, you said that, the, that there was anger at the time in the parents and the children. Can you explain a bit about that? What was the sort of the, paint a picture of the school when you joined? Well, the, the school was a failing school in the sense that, um, you know, it had been gone into special measures outcomes um, were very poor um, for all children, but, you know, even more for disadvantaged children and also for black Caribbean pupils. Um, and behaviour was, um, I would say, unruly. So there was a lot of the work uh, happening in classes was kind of trying to maintain this sort of anger in the community. So um, children were acting out a lot, so there was quite a lot of uh, violence, but then also parents were reacting quite violently. So I remember one of the first things I had to do was to deal with uh, a case where the police had been called in because a parent had attacked a child um, because the school wasn't dealing with, um, you know, the problems that were happening. So we we went, you know, we were on a huge journey. And, and also I was on a journey. I was a new head, so I didn't really know very much about what I was doing, to be honest. And so I was feeling my thinking and feeling my way uh, through it, but always open to and never shutting down um, what I believe was righteous rage um, as opposed to an angry mob. Right. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, and so the, the school has been on something of a journey in the interim. Um, can we talk a little bit about what the school is like now? And then we'll maybe go back and talk about the journey. Because I know that one of the things that I really like about your work is that you're not into quick fixes. And this whole, we talked a lot about the, the sort of the idea of the super head who can just swoop into a school and turn everything around and then swoop back out to the next school and how problematic that idea is and the whole idea of the leader as a sort of as a hero, as a saviour. Um, and so we'll, we'll maybe get into all of that. But um, so so Rathfern now, I mean, I know enough about Ofsted to know that we can take certain, you know, like the grades that Ofsted give with a pinch of salt because they're not mm. necessarily reflective of reality. But as I understand it, Ofsted have recognised that the school is is outstanding in every category, is it? And 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 the results are phenomenal. And you're now a a research school, and the disadvantage gap data is really impressive. So, can you just explain a little bit about uh, do a better job than I just did <laughs> of, of explaining what the school is like now? So, I, I you know I'm really proud to say that the team are incredibly committed. Um, to you know tackling social injustice and environmental injustice for that matter and committed to working uh with the community and empowering children uh to really engage with the trickiness of learning um so it's a powerful learning community i would say and it's always uh developing and innovating and um you know, refining its approach because teachers are very reflexive, reflective and reflexive and committed to their own learning. And there's a, I think there's such a deep, deep kind of um, commitment to transforming inequality that it drives us to we always kind of improving our approach because we're not we're talking about inequality within the school but we talk about kind of global societal inequality is very much part of the conversation and the dialogue because teaching is so complex and you know it's about all those dimensions in the classroom teachers are so becoming so adept at teaching the maths but at the same time making sure that the children are becoming and continuing to develop their relationship with each other and the world and you know it's so complex but somehow we are creating this community of um, really powerful teachers who are really committed to improving their pedagogy but also committed to kind of enabling children to be real citizens of the world at the same time. And that's a really important part of our work because it's about the quality of the children that leave us, literate, numerate, but as and more importantly, compassionate human beings who don't are wanting and and not because they've been indoctrinated, and this is really important. You know, Spivak talks about the uncoercive rearrangement of desires, and I think our curriculum really enables children to do that, to start reflecting differently about who they are, how they are. And I think the adults go on that journey here. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's definitely been my uh, my experience. So, just for the for listeners' sake, so so I I um, became sort of aware of your school when you, we did the research informed peer review program. So this is um, a program that was developed by my colleague David Godfrey at UCL, um, and it's sort of like um, a bit like lesson study where you have teachers going and observing one another, but it's across schools. So there was three or four schools involved in that in that. Um, program and it was so focused around feedback so we all you know spend a day going and looking at lessons in one of the schools but we also interview teachers and interview students as well um and it's a really impressive place to 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 come and see how things play out in in terms of the classroom practice especially as i remember around metacognition which was you know something that i know has been very central to your thinking over the years um, and the way that that plays out and so that the children have a really strong understanding of this it's really transparent that the children are able to talk about these these ideas and since then we've worked on the implementation science program which as you know is you know my current obsession and that's where we work with a vertical slice so we put a team together of you know senior leaders middle leaders year group leaders classroom teachers teaching assistants um, and around that planning table everybody's an equal and everybody's voice is equally valued um, and it, I was so impressed by by the, the quality of the teachers and the, and the learning support and teaching assistants that are in the school and how engaged they are and how energized they are not just in doing you know their job to the letter but in, in, in terms of these wider issues um, and in terms of school improvement more generally. So it's, it is a hugely impressive um, place to place to be. So let's talk a little bit about how you have taken this on this journey. Like you said, you joined, um, it was your first headship. You felt like you, you know, were getting into something that was, you know, a very complex, challenging situation. Um, where did you begin and what were the sort of the, the key ideas that have shaped your thinking and the school's development through that process? So just before I um, joined um, Rathburn, I had been at UCL doing my master's probably a couple of years before, and it was the best thing that I'd ever done. So it was way more for me personally, a, a really powerful experience of learning. I, I did an MA in effective learning, and I had the privilege of working with people like uh, Chris Watkins, who just revolutionized um, my way of defining myself as a classroom practitioner. And it was so powerful, um, the work that I did with him. And my dissertation was the use of learning journals with my year six uh, class. And it was so transformational. And so many of those young people have kept in touch with me to this day. I mean, I got this amazing email one day just popped up and it was from a, a woman a young uh, woman called Imogen who had been in my class and she said I'm doing my I'm going for my MA interview today and I you know I wanted to tell you um, and I don't know if you're still in schools or if you're working so I want to say that I'm going to talk about you because when you talked taught me to think about my learning it just transformed who I was in that classroom and it just I mean that happened recently the email about two years ago but taking children on that journey and going on a journey myself just really convinced me um, over time because my master's took me quite a while I had children I was a full-time deputy head I've never had the luxury of not being able to work and study it's always been both um, 
But, you know, I started to develop and trial those ideas as a deputy in my school, and I could just see how it was energising teachers. They were starting to look at what was happening. In, I mean, it was bizarre. I'd been teaching by that point for over 10 years, and we'd never asked ourselves what learning was. And so I was asking these really basic questions, but people were you know, mesmerised because they'd never actually asked the questions themselves. So I saw what it did for the community when I was a deputy and I was absolutely hell-bent on making sure that that was a driving force in my school and really taking it to the team. So when we started to think about when things started to stabilise, but even from day one, there's no doubt about it, you know, when you enter a school with the kind of chaos that was happening and the lack of leadership that, you know, that it was a really uncomfortable time for everybody. Uh, learning is messy and learning is uncomfortable. And because I came in with that view from a classroom teacher perspective, but also from a head, um, you know, it meant that we embraced the challenge in a way that, you know, wasn't demonising or criminalising everybody. But, you know, we were having to rethink and relearn in order to change things for the better for the children. So we started to look at how we can really promote effective learning. So we did some simple things. We said, well, what makes an effective learner? You know, and I got the staff to brain, well, to mind map it, to thought shower it, and then we started to develop our approach with learning attributes, um, and that very much was co-constructed with the team, uh, but then developed over time. Mm, yeah. Um, okay. And so, so there's a couple of things that I think it would be good to to pick up on. One of them is I know that the the Sustainable Development Goals, the UN SDGs, I can see them behind you on the wall there, have been very central to your to your curriculum development. Yeah. And also this idea of the three M's, um, that these your sort of homespun, um, you know, framework for thinking about school improvement. Which one would you like to take first? Maybe the three M's, because that sort of explains why we've kind of adopted and are developing the SDGs. So, yeah, so um, um, I don't even know how long ago it was, but I did start my doctorate, but I, you know, then I had a personal um, problem. So I just thought, no, I I can't do the doctorate as well. But it was during this time that... um, I started to try and conceptualise what we were doing at Rathburn and I was sort of trying to distill from it what the key kind of elements were of our approach. And I, you know, I came up, you know, I did lots of reading and, well, obviously metacognition was one of the key elements. So, you know, metacognition had to be a central part because that was about how you develop, really develop that learner agency and you really empower both children and teachers to be able to plan monitor and regulate how they're approaching uh, their role but then I the other element two really important elements for us were moral purpose and I say moral so we've all I've always asked myself why am I doing this job because actually I've always wanted to change the world, um, so I'm quite a political animal, I would say. Um, but then when I found teaching, I thought, well, you can combine the two and you can actually 
work with people to see what needs to be changed. You can't make anyone do anything, but you can present, you know, scenarios, the situation, so that people decide how they're going to act. Um, and, and for me, it is a moral um, journey. It's it's moral because children are so important um, because they are the future. It's moral because we make that difference in the classroom. So, our moral purpose acknowledges that, you know, we don't all start at the same position, that there are systemic forces to do with race and class which really hamper children and adults' journey. And unless we acknowledge those, we're not really ever going to tackle anything because we'll just keep looking at the results. You know, everything is about evidence and that evidence is always about pupils outcomes well they won't change if we don't start by looking at where do the does the injustice start so and i think that's critically woven into our kind of commitment to intelligence as being malleable so we don't i mean you know i have read a lot of dweck's work and i love it you know and it's really important um and it's been really critical, I think, for education, but it can only go so far if you don't look at what, for me, are the roots of people's either conscious or unconscious kind of alignment with intelligence, because, for me, intelligence is very much linked to class and race and then gender, and it's got a historical root, which is kind of our... We've been decolonising for a long time, way before kind of the recent sort of interest in it because for me decolonizing is understanding that historical uh systemic uh race and classism that uh kind of puts that ceiling on poor and black non-white non-english speaking children so those are the three m's so the moral purpose drives the commitment to malleable intelligence because without it you can easily and do easily default back to fixed intelligence for certain groups of children. And the metacognition reminds us all the time to plan for those biases, to monitor them uh, and to regulate them. So that's how the three M's come together uh, in our approach. Mm. It's absolutely brilliant. I love it. And, it. and it makes such sense. Like you say, like taken separately, each of the three M's, metacognition, moral purpose, malleable intelligence, um, you know, it makes sense to have a clear def clear idea, but it's the way that they interact that makes them so interesting. And so so with regard to, to moral purpose, I remember you saying a while ago that, that you know, if people don't get angry <laughs> at interview, then you just think, well, I, I'm not going to employ you because if you're not angry about what's going on, then, you know, you're not paying attention. Um, yeah. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so I, I mean... I am, you know, I am an angry person and I think um, I've learned over the years to communicate that uh, in a way that is, I guess, acceptable. But it's that anger that I recognise in my children and my community. So there's this um, kind of, for me, a really deep kind of almost like communion that I have um, which gives me the courage really to keep on because it, it's tough it is really tough working in the community with high levels of 
kind of anger which is rooted in a historical kind of mistrust, which is rooted in colonialism, post-colonialism, slavery, indentured labour, all of all of that kind of and that daily experience of whiteness which dominates and diminishes those of us that experience it. So if you're not you know, so I am an angry person, so I can relate to, and I don't judge people for being angry. In fact, I kind of celebrate it, and I, you know, talk to the team around about the importance of having passion in this situation. And there's a lot of people who think if you're too passionate, you can't be practical, and you know, if you're too angry, you can't think straight. Well, you know, the starting point is to. If you're not angry, so one of our questions uh, at interview, crudely put, is dumb rich kids outperform poor smart kids. And if if the interview doesn't really respond to that in a way that makes me think this is something that they're going to be committed to throughout their journey, then we we can't recruit them because they don't have that kind of resilience and that kind of, you know, commitment to you know, working with what is essentially a challenging community because our children do not come from, most of our children come from deeply uncomfortable sort of life experiences and they need to work with teachers who can, who have the kind of love and the commitment to understand that and turn that into a kind of learning power and not write it off as, kind of, you know, when children are angry, they shut down um, and they can't think straight, but that's very easily misjudged. If you don't believe, have the moral purpose, if you don't believe intelligence is malleable as children not responding and not being intelligent, and therefore you put a ceiling on those children. So, you, you know, my team, all of them have a story which helps them to understand and to commit to, you know, kind of lifelong commitment because I'm not about creating teachers I'm I want all my teachers to be head teachers one day if that's what they want to do but I want them to be the kind of head teachers who have that lifelong love for tackling inequality and that's got to be at the heart of what we're doing in education yes yes I agree completely and it's so refreshing to hear you speaking like this because it's often presented almost like as a sort of it's like in, in academic terms it's like oh this is just a graph that we need to, you know, make it look a bit, a bit less, less unequal. But it's, it's not a graph, is it? It's like people's lived experiences. And I, I agree with you that if you, if you haven't really been exposed to those life stories, and if you haven't been at the thick end of this, then you're not going to feel that. But it can, I can see how that anger really burns in, in, you know, lots of the work that you're doing. Anger is often sort of, you know, it's it's seen as a negative thing, but anger is an energy, right? I think there's a song or a book or something with that title, and lots of people have talked about that, about how it fuels them to 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 go further, um, and to address this stuff. You know, not just in some academic way, but in a way that just you feel in your bones, you know, every day. Um, so that's. And I think that sometimes for me is missing. You know, when I hear people speak, I it feels like there's a disconnect between the heart and the mind. And I, you know, you know, we are heart, body and mind. And therefore, sort of, you know, if you don't feel it, it's very hard to, and I think children and my parents are a very good judge of that, you know, so they, they do intuitively understand and, and will, 
listen um, in a way that I think for other people, perhaps the historical kind of leadership team, they didn't um, kind of didn't believe in them, which made them more angry because I think they thought this is a day job. This is, you know, I don't think you're really trying to understand my child. And that's often what parents say. You know, what we know in Lewisham is that the lowest achieving groups also have the highest rates of exclusion. And those families definitely feel that people aren't listening and that they don't understand their children and the policies and the practices within school actually escalate the anger rather than de-escalate it. And we're about de-escalating and giving children the kind of tools to really be able to have good executive functioning skills so that they can think clearly, move beyond the anger as well, and be really productive in their lives. Um, I read somewhere that somebody said, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. And I think that's so powerful. Um, and we stand for something. Yeah. We stand for kind of social justice. And we don't fall for anything because we will ask questions. Well, why should we be doing that? Yes, I love it. I love it. Um, and so that's moral purpose. Uh, on the malleable intelligence thing, that's something that I spoke about a little bit with Rachel McFarlane in a recent episode. Um, and she was talking about the importance of like, the, like, that question is often really about what's going on in the minds of teachers and the things that they say and the sort of the unconscious biases that co that sometimes come out where teachers say things like, oh, that's all well and good, but that's not going to work for these kids. They sort of, you know, in a well-meaning way, they sort of think, oh, I don't want to, you know, push these kids. I don't want to impose middle-class values on them, for example, and talk about going to university. Um, and so with for, with a hundred different labels on, people, the teachers, you know, with the best one in the world can sometimes make excuses for their kids and therefore, you know, that, that hard horrible phrase that Michael Gove loves so much, the soft bigotry of low expectations, you know, there's a grain of truth in there, you know? Yeah, there is. Um, I think the problem is that the, the whole way of operating um, kind of is a bit of a contradiction on that. So, yeah, yeah I think heads, leaders, um, you know, ultimately they have the responsibility, I think, to uh, model and to, um, you know, to yeah, to model that commitment to malleable intelligence. So the way that they treat their team, you know, can then be reenacted within the classroom. So if you're judging lessons, I mean, we haven't judged lessons for years because the same kind of fixed intelligence, this is an outstanding teacher, this is a good teacher, this is a satisfactory teacher, that then plays out in teachers. So teachers, what we know is that teachers teach the way they were taught, unless you do something, unless you really develop metacognitive teachers who plan for disrupting that way of teaching, who can monitor that they're not going to default back to the way that they were taught and then do and regulate that, those tendencies. We need to model that as leaders with our team and then it's much more likely there'll be an alignment within the classroom. But I think malleable intelligence is such a challenge to deeply, deeply en enact within the system. I think it's the hardest thing in some ways to enact because the historical legacy of this country and many global 
you know, many countries across the world, has been contingent on the dehumanization of people according to their class or their race. And how do you dehumanize? You say these people don't have enough intelligence, therefore they can be exploited. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then with the third one, with metacognition, I remember you saying before that like this is more about what's going on within the mind of individual teachers it and is. within the minds of young people themselves because this, the, this is the emancipatory mechanism. The metacognition is the way in which you, you can break out of these shackles that have been placed around you by capitalist societies, by, by societal structures, by class and by race and so on. Uh, could you speak to that a little bit? Well, yeah, because how do you disrupt that fundamental relationship of inequality? Because we keep looking at graphs of inequality, but we're not getting to the root of it. And, you know, I know some people think, well, you know, you're in education, you're not a politician. But people in education enact policy. Policy is created by politicians. So, you know, you cannot reduce, you know, schools can't be removed from that system. Mm. But the way my passion for metacognition is from an emancipatory pedagogy, I'm, you know, I began the journey thinking, well, maybe this is the way we can school-proof people because, you know, schools are fundamentally unjust places that reenact kind of, they just replicate the inequality. But if you create children and teachers who can plan for the the kind of problematic nature of relationships um, and then monitor how they are enacting their pedagogy which is in a more just way then they can you know there's much more chance that children will not be damaged by that system and for children themselves you know even if the teacher is biased so my experience of teachers was regularly being treated as if I, you know, just couldn't do anything. And I didn't have the tools to say, you know, I didn't have that clarity. I couldn't plan my my day and my thinking. I couldn't monitor how I was acting in a, you know, in a situation. I would shut down. I did believe, you know, the things that teachers were telling me about my intelligence and therefore I couldn't regulate myself. So for me, metacognition is really critical to liberate children, but also teachers from oppressive kind of historical um, processes, but also give teachers a way of you know, looking at some of the things that we're being told work in the classroom with a more critical kind of eye. So, yes, we it's really important that we're mindful of cognitive load theory because, you know, that's something that has become the zeitgeist people talk about. And it's really really important that we understand how much children can take on and remember. But also the metacognitive teacher understands there's more to learning than just regurgitating and remembering. Mm -hmm. So the metacognitive teacher brings in the other dimensions. Teaching is the most complex thing in the world because you have to operate on multi-dimensions. And if you're not metacognitive I don't believe you can do that you'll be a very linear teacher you know input output you know kind of way and that's not truly educating children in your classroom yes 
Yeah, it's it's a very it's a very sophisticated way of of thinking about the the set of problems that we face. I love how those three M's fit together. Um, it's a brilliant thing. I know that you you disrupted your your doctorate, but I hope that you'll pick it up sometime. Or well, have you written about the three M's? Uh, in part, but I think you know the good thing is that because the three M's have become very much a part of the way we do things here at Rathburn, I'm learning so much from how adults are interpreting it in their own way. So, you know, sometimes I'll sit and I will interview my staff just because I'm sort of checking in on how they're seeing things. And one of my team said to me, which I thought was, I'd never thought about that. She said, you know, everybody's committed to the three M's, uh, Nahida, but some people have more moral purpose um, you know, and some people have a better grasp on the metacognition, and maybe we need a mixture of that in people. And I was like, well, I hadn't thought about it like that. And she's, you know, this teacher was saying, well, maybe some people don't really understand metacognition, but their moral purpose will help them and drive them to want to understand it. Whereas maybe some people join us because they've got this love of metacognition, but they don't really have the moral purpose. And they haven't really got, because they haven't got moral purpose, they keep reenacting the kind of fixed view of intelligence. So she sort of got me to think about it in a different way. So when I do come back to it, I think I'll be able to look at it in probably a richer way than I did because that's learning, you know, that it we become hopefully when I come back to it, I'll be looking at the three M's through how it's transformed my teachers and my children um, because it is about the adults and the it's got to be about the adults as much as the children in the school. Yeah, yeah, of course. And that's something that's been developing in my own thinking a lot in recent years. And I've become at least as interested in, in adult learning as I am in, in the learning of young people. Um, and to go back to some of the things that you were touching on earlier about school proofing and so on, and the, the way in which schools reproduce inequality, this is something that I'm hoping to, to that this podcast will help to, to shine a light on because it's often just sort of it's like taken as an unquestionable good that schools are a good thing and that we're that they themselves are emancipatory mechanisms and that they are places that young people can go that get qualifications they get love and support and pastoral care and we do our very best and we can't help them all but despite everything we sort of you know we do our best to get them to go off and have a good start in the world and that's one way of looking at it. And that's certainly what many people believe, right? And that's what gets many teachers out of bed in the morning, that they think that they're going to, you know, go to school and, and do, a good, do a good job and to help young people, of course. And all of that is simultaneously true. But also <clears throat> we can see other ways in which schools do damage, right? That they reproduce inequality, like you say. And often <clears throat> this is sort of, this is not in the mainstream. And when people raise it, they are dismissed and shouted down as like, oh, you're talking down the profession. I can remember a while ago on, on Twitter, I was sort of saying something about how, I think I wrote a, a blog about it, about how just, a, it was quite a simple point really about how, because because classrooms are sort of top-down micromanaged places and we tell kids what to do and when and how and so on all the time. And this is what success will look like. And these are the learning intentions for this lesson um that that the young people become sort of helpless right and they can become just that sometimes they ask all these helpless 
questions. And we opened our book with this. I asked a question on Twitter, what are the types of helpless things that kids ask? And we were inundated mm-hmm. with people saying, oh, my pencil's broken or where, what, you know, what, where should I put the rubbish and stuff like this? Like they're, they're asking these helpless questions because they sort of become infantilized by this process and they become very dependent on the teachers. And I was sort of making this point and saying, you know, learning to learn is a way we can get around this. We can teach them how to, how to help themselves. And somebody was saying, oh, you're teaching, you're talking down the teaching profession. You know, we're all trying to do a good job and you're just making out like we're making kids dependent. But there's, there, there, there are more serious arguments even than that. There's, you know, there's, I know that you're aware of Diane Ray's amazing work and her book, Miseducation, which goes into great forensic detail about the ways in which schools reproduce inequality. And there's other papers. There was a, the, the well-known paper by Clive Harbour, Schooling uh, as Violence, um, and as violence against the individual and against... What is it? Schooling as Violence, How Schools Harm Pupils and Society. And interestingly, Becky Francis, who's now the now the head of the of the EEF, wrote a paper a while ago with, with Martin Mills called "Schools as Damaging Organizations." So, and, and lots of these these wider sort of conversations about like the the way in which schools, you know, it's not all just in the pros column. There are pros and cons here, and there are things that we can do to rethink and reshape education to get stuff out of that cons column. And there are we could have a, a whole conversation about that. But that's partly what I'm hoping to do with these conversations is to open that up and to have a really honest, robust, hard-headed look at the, the uh, this, you know, across the piece, the good and the bad. Well, yeah, I do agree with you. And I've been listening to a number of your podcasts and some of them with trepidation, uh, the Cunningham one. I thought, oh, I just don't think I can cope with this. <laughs> but it was so important because my experience of school was that it was a toxic place. I didn't want to be in school. Um, and I, you know, I think that we can't kid ourselves. You know, there are certain people who perhaps do perhaps um, join the profession because you do have power um, over vulnerable people. But, you know, you have to, this is why asking what we are doing and why we are doing it and not just always, you know, why, why, why is so important rather than, sorry, what, what, what? Because if we keep asking ourselves why, we can kind of check in on ourselves and be more kind of aware of when you're organised. Because schools are places of control, whether we like it or not, but how do we keep ourselves in check? And to what extent is that control damaging to children? Is you know, it's the it's the kind of critical question you ask yourself as a parent when you watch um, you know, children are just such amazing natural learners. They really ask, they ask so many questions and what on earth happens to them? You know, they enter school asking questions and they leave not wanting to. So what is it we're trying to really think deeply about that, um, you know, to keep that kind of passion and interest. And one way for us is around this whole commitment we have to social action so something that we do um, very much as a part of our work is the sustainable development goals Um, and this is the way we talk to our children about you know there are these 17 goals though if my children had it there would be 18 um, that have to be um, achieved by 2030 that's within their lifetime and it really motivates them with a purpose why do you know this is something that they can work on be involved it gives them you know 
the saddest thing about school is that some children just don't see the point of being here. And that's criminal. They spend a lot of time here and they shouldn't be here because they are forced to be here. They, you know, they, they should come because, and they do come to Rathen because they really love being here because there's a sense of they're going, they have a purpose. You know, they, there are these 17 goals that the world needs to achieve not just for them but for the rest of humanity and they learn you know how they are going to grow into citizens that will have a purpose in the world and for us that's a really important part and it's something that school just didn't do for me I had to find that meaning for myself and I think we're not in you know it's really important for me to stress we are not indoctrinating children we we present the goals and we we give them opportunities and kind of scenario where they problem solve and they look at finding solutions. And I think education must be a place where we empower children to have a purpose beyond kind of us that goes then into their kind of life after school, into their life with their, you know, because what we want to teach children to do is how to live within the world. So, and that isn't just the world of the school, you know, our values, our core values should be something that the children take with them into their life on the street and the bus and in their homes, you know, that are going to really make this planet a better place for everybody, I guess is a really important part. And it's something that when you only look at effect size, you can't really judge that part of our school's kind of mission, well, not mission, I hate that word, our kind of our ambition for the children, really, and for ourselves, because I think, you know, let's not kid ourselves. We don't know all the answers, and I think, you know, we are the reason the planet is in, the mess it is in, and I regularly say that to children. You know, we don't have the solutions. You need to help us kind of find the solutions to, to achieve the sustainable development goals because the current adults who are in charge of the world, you know, just don't seem to have the, you know, and it's a wonderful challenge for children. It fills them with a real sense of, you know, they've got a purpose. They can, they can find solutions that adults, you know, in math, the adults know the answers, let's say, but they don't know the answers to achieving the sustainable development goals. I think that's a really powerful you know, and it drives our children to see a purpose then in the maths and the science and, and the other subjects they teach because, you know, th these are the children who are making the future and the future is to live sustainably. We don't know how to do that. We don't know how to live in a world that isn't unequal. And these are the children who hopefully will help us do that. Mm. Yeah. So, so I know it's going to be difficult to to uh to sort of summarize because i like this the, the sustainable development goals are very central to so much of your thinking just in case and if there's anybody who isn't aware of this these are 17 goals that have been that have been sort of agreed upon by scientists and, and the united nations and it's things like you know clean water and sanitation gender equality is in there um uh, action on on the climate and so on and that was why so you said a, minute, a moment ago that you think that that your students think that there should be eight because that was that was linked to the fact that there is one for gender equality and i, I read a, a, a one of your was it a year six student wrote an incredible yeah. letter to the united nations to say <laughs> there should be an 18th one yeah so i mean obviously 
we talk a lot about um, justice here and, and obviously racial justice and I'm more so, you know, um, everyone's talking about it since uh, the tragic murder of George Floyd. But um, one of my year six students, he's an amazing scholar, he did, he wrote a letter to the U. He came to see me, he said he was troubled and I said, you know, yeah, well, let's talk what's troubling. And he said, you know, I've been looking at these SDGs since I joined this school and there's something missing. And none of us, none of the adults had seen this, by the way. This was this child. And everyone I've spoken to since has said, wow, yeah, we've been working on the Sustainable Development Goals and none of us have seen it. So he wants an SDG 18 and, and he wants that to be race, racial justice. He said, there's gender inequality, we should look at race inequality. Um, and I'm, you know, really proud that a Raffern scholar has come up with, with that kind of gap in the Sustainable Development Goals. But the reason they're so important at Raffern is... Um, if you look at Sustainable Development Goal, is it um, 16, Peace, Justice and Strong Institutions? So, you know, the idea of war. So the only time we really talk about war is when we do World War Two, And actually, wars across the world, apart from the shocking loss of lives, costs the planet a huge amount of money. Um, for anybody who doesn't know about the campaign against the arms trade, get involved in them because they're brilliant. And they've done so much analysis on, you know, just what we can do in a civil society with what we pay for, say, one nuclear missile. So they do this really amazing sort of cost analysis. And you can share that with children and you can say, you know, um, you know, so, is, you know, one of our moral questions is, is it ever just to go to war? You know, so the children then look at which wars are just and unjust. But we also look at the kind of economy of, of war. Um, you know, and I think from my point of view, if we're going to make our children citizens of a democracy informed, then they need to make an informed decision about whether they really want a government who's going to spend a significant amount of the nation's wealth on just piling up nuclear weapons. Now, they can't do that in the current national curriculum. So unless you look at sustainable development goals and you bring that up when you're looking at war and you link it to SDG 17, then, you know, you can't... Uh, it's not the 16, isn't it? SDG 16. Then you can't have that conversation with children. And it's... And I keep coming back to the point that we are not indoctrinating, but we are presenting children with the opportunity to reframe to rethink about how they want to be in this world, whether they want to be, you know, informed citizens or just compliant citizens. And we believe it's our duty to give them information that makes them able to make informed decisions. Yes, yeah, and it's a it's an incredibly well written letter. This this thing that this that this uh, Rathfern scholar has written to the UN. Hopefully. Um, there will be a reply coming forthwith. Who we, knows? We hope so. We've sent it to a number of places, but um, we've not heard anything yet. <laughs> the, 
this is all just so fascinating. I could talk about it all day, but I, I want to get onto the rethinking education part of the conversation. And as you know, I like to get to know the guest a little bit and to understand what has shaped you as a person and what your own experience of childhood and, and, of, and of school and later education was like. So let's go there um, next, if we may. So can you just explain a little bit about your own experience of school and what your early life was like? I think the word that describes school for me was othering. Um, I think I've always, my whole life experience was just feeling othered and never kind of belonging in in school, in the playground, um, probably at university as well. And I think that, you know, back then, um, you know, I don't, it just didn't occur to the school um, to to make any attempt to understand um, children and who they were and what they brought with them into the school and how that impacted on how they operated as learners. So, yes, yeah, school, I think, othered me and I think had very low expectations. And I think, you know, a lot of people um, who fail the 11 plus, they either kind of go with that, you know, view of their intelligence or they uh, challenge it. And I think luckily for me, I, I've always been uh, quite angry. So for me, it was kind of challenging that judgment on my intelligence in a kind of slow and steady way, I think, through an internal conversation with self. So I learned optimistic self-talk very early and I just used that to navigate my my way and that's something that we very much try and develop in our children yeah so education was not a positive experience in any way I, I didn't feel I could ever be myself um, and I think you know that's criminal really mm, yes yeah so so we spoke about this a bit last week didn't we I don't know how much of this you're you're sort of like happy to to share but there's an incredible <laughs> bit of like a, a sort of an instance where you um so you so you said you didn't pass the 11 plus no. uh, and so you went to what i guess was a secondary modern yeah um, and you said that it was horrible and you described it as toxic and racist and that it was somehow like lord of the flies that you're putting all of these underprivileged kids poor kids together and you're just sort of letting, letting it play out yeah. <laughs> some sort I of mean- unethical experiment it was. I mean, the fact I miss, I missed school for a year and nobody asked where I was. So I actually left the country and it wasn't in the day where, you know, now it would be a child missing an education. And I, when I came back, I was sort of, um, before going to Pakistan, I was pretty corpulent, actually, because I just lived off a diet of rubbish. And then when I went to Pakistan, um, I didn't eat. So I came back and I was like half the size, had the biggest headlines you could imagine and my teacher just she didn't even ask me where I'd been she's just like oh you're back are you oh yeah <laughs> I just you know it's kind of disbelieved that nobody actually bothered her so that's how unimportant we were really in that school but anyway it was that year that had such an impact so you know I've got a lot of time for people who's, who talk about the power of not being in education because for a year I wasn't in education. I learned so much. I learned so much about what I could be by being firstly in a, in a world where I was a visible majority. So I went to Pakistan. Everybody was brown like me. And the psychological... I remember arriving 
I, whether it was Lahore or Karachi, I can't remember. But just the psychological dis, kind of, I, I almost felt the edge as coming, you know, the hot air coming out. I just felt like a different person because nobody was really looking at me anymore. You know, so I looked the same as everybody else. And that feeling of being part of the visible majority was, I think, psychologically transforming for me. Um, I was also coming to a country where I couldn't speak the language, so it was really weird. I, I, I understood bits of it, but I couldn't speak, so I was in a silent period for about three months. Um, but anyway, the short and long of spending a year in Pakistan was I came back and I suddenly, you know, woke up. I felt like I'd come out of a deep sleep. I think I mentioned to you earlier that I lost both my parents at six, six and a half. And so I think I had been in kind of a post-traumatic sort of state of being. You know, and that's another thing that's really dear to my heart, understanding that sort of dimension of children. So so I didn't, you know, I didn't know it was 11 plus, failed my 11 plus, wasn't really. I was alive but not present at school. But that year away brought me back to be very present in the education system. And I actually noticed that the teacher didn't notice that I hadn't been in school for a year, which was quite amusing, because I think before I'd been, I probably wouldn't even thought that was a big deal. So I knew anyway that I needed to go to university. Somehow some message had got into my head. I needed to go to university. I didn't want a traditional life. I did not want an arranged marriage. When we were in Pakistan, I saw my sister because we didn't have a mum and dad. Um, we were considered to have a British passport and therefore we had some kind of like wealth attached to us I was like oh god you know that can't happen to my sister so I don't I'm conscious not to promote stereotypes as well so that may not have happened it's what I believed would have happened so I saw a purpose to become educated decided that I needed to take O levels spoke to the school about it and they said no and the short and long of it is through battling with them they probably thought I had really I was really insolent I did get them to to agree to me doing dual entry. So I was able to take O levels as well as CSEs, but I had to teach myself the syllabus. Um, so it was tough, but I did pass. And I went off to a grammar school, got good enough A levels to go to university. Yeah. Okay. That that's that was the short version of that story. <laughs> there's a there's a, a I, I heard the full version of it uh, last week when we spoke, and and it is quite remarkable. Would you be happy to go into that in a little bit more depth about? So you went to knock on you in the secondary modern. You went to knock on this the, the head teacher's door. You were a diminutive, what, fourteen years old, and you were like, I need to do all levels. Can you just give us the, the, the sort of slightly longer version of that story? Okay, so, yeah, I knocked on the door. On, you know, bear in mind I was bricking myself all the way there because I don't know what courage or what was going on in my head because this wasn't a conversation I'd had with anyone. Remember, I was then under a legal guardianship with an older brother, so I didn't have a mum and dad. So, But I just had this voice in my head, right, just go talk to somebody. So I thought, well, who to go to? It wasn't the head teacher, I went to the deputy head, knocked on the door, and I just remember this very long, narrow room with the two adults sitting at the end and me being very tiny and standing 
far away and then sort of just looking above their desk, yes, what do you want? I said, oh, I need to talk to you about O-levels. And they just both looked at you. They said, O-levels? <laughs> they looked at me. I said, yes, I need to do O-levels. And I think I was asked to go closer to the desk. And they were talking about me in third person. So I said, I need to take O-levels. One of them said, she said, she needs to take O-levels. <laughs> and the other one said, she said that. And then they would then talk to, one of them would talk to me and take it in turn. So it was a weird, weird conversation. No, 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 no. We don't do O-levels here. We are a secondary modern. She doesn't understand, they would say to each other, <laughs> as if I wasn't there. It was so weird. So they sent me packing, um, saying no. But I just wasn't happy with that. So I went back the next day, what, or, or maybe a couple of days later, I can't remember the time frame, same conversation. She's back. She wants to take O-levels. You can't take O-levels. But I have to, and I think I was getting emotional now. I was like, but I have to. I have to go to the grammar school. I, I need to go to university. And they were sort of shaking their heads at me. No, 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 no. Um, and I didn't give up. I think I went a third or a fourth time, and they both were so furious with me. Um, you know, and they pretended they didn't hear me knocking, but I kept knocking. And then they said that I would have to pay for them. And and that was, for me, kind of the end of the line because we just didn't have money um, to pay. And I just didn't even want to go home and ask. Um, so I didn't ask my brother. But I somehow managed to find money for the phone box. So I rang my sister, who lived in London, um, with my 10p or whatever it was, and just burst into tears. And she thought probably the worst had happened, like the electricity had been cut off again or something like that. I said, no, no, it's not that. Um, you know, and you know, have you got enough food to eat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My brother nicked food and we've got food to eat. So what is it? And I told her this story, and she said, Well, you know, I'm really sorry, darling, we don't have a lot of money. But the the good news is that her husband did pay. He paid for me to do five double entries. So I was able to get five O levels, which is the minimum I needed to go to the grammar school, which is where I went. And that's a whole other story. <laughs> Yeah, that's so fascinating and uh, and and incredibly, you know, just like strong willed of you. I'd I'd love to hear where this like optimistic self talk came from. Where people keep, you know, we were talking about unconscious bias earlier. That's just like conscious bias, isn't it? It's like spoken out there. You know, none of these children will ever come to anything, and our no, job it is really to just was. yeah. Absolutely incredible. So, you know, we're sort of moving in the right direction. When you look over a longer time period, you know, at least it's unconscious now that what's left of those, those sorts of biases. Um, and, and also the, the, an echo of that earlier bit of conversation where you were talking about school as othering and school as being a, a problematic place, but also you totally bought into and still buy into the idea that school can also, and education is a mechanism for emancipation and for changing your narrative. Um, so that's uh, that's amazing. And this was in a place, you, you know, when we spoke last week, you were saying that your main um, su survival strategy was to hide 
at this school that, that it was yeah. a very sort of you know dangerous place and I don't know if you've listened to a previous episode with Tim Taylor he had a very similar experience he went to a, a one form entry private not even one form entry he, there was about six kids in his primary school his dad was the head teacher six oh, kids of, of all ages and then he went to this like 2000 kid secondary school secondary modern and he was just like this is not safe and was just sort of in you know in in you know um fight or flight mode the whole time and so you used to used to hide away and just sort of bide your time as you were going through this so to go from somewhere that you're in this quite an extreme place where you were feeling like not safe and other to be able to actually turn those circumstances around is like really quite something um, I wonder where that came from. I don't know if you've got any insight into that. <clears throat> I, I, I don't know. I think, you know, I just learned to navigate. I mean, you, you said this, uh, chaos very early. And I think I could, you know, I, I just, maybe I had a survival instinct, but I think I just, I always knew when things were not fair and I knew it was not fair that I was being told I couldn't do this. I knew it was not fair that I couldn't, I didn't have a, I, one of the things I really wanted to do actually was learn to ride a bike and I didn't have a bike. Um, so I stole my brother's bike. It was a chopper and I would, and I had to do this clandestinely because I was also living in a kind of quite patriarchal situation where we weren't, girls weren't supposed to ride a bike. So I always had this tendency to want to do what I shouldn't be doing, but behind everyone's back, I would take the bike out and, I was determined to come back and learn. So I think I did do it over two days. I taught myself to ride a bike and I had the wounds to um, to prove it, but I even had to hide those wounds. So I just had this, had these legs covered in grazes. I couldn't tell anyone about because I'd been doing this behind everyone's back. And I just had this, it wasn't fair that I didn't have a bike. My brother had a bike. It wasn't fair that I couldn't take O-levels. And, and I think that's very much you know, my my deep commitment to malleable intelligence is because I, I feel really sensitively when people don't have a belief in others linked to intelligence, probably because I experience that so aggressively. Um, for me, I've got a real, very deep, nuanced kind of sensitivity to that. So, I see it in practice, in conversation all the time. And I think that is linked to the three M's. It's about that moral purpose, not just an intellectual commitment to, yeah, everybody should believe that, you know, in a growth mindset, it's so deeply rooted in kind of kind of societal inequality that we've got to make the link with the two. But where it's come from for me is, I guess, no think I had to survive it you know it's um I could see what may happen to me if I didn't um and I think that when you have a traumatic childhood it also desensitizes you sometimes to some because I I think I took a lot of risks and I think when you know maybe if I hadn't had, had that trauma maybe I would have been more hesitant but there was nothing kind of what was I going to lose you know, when you've kind of lost something so significant in your life, you've got a different perspective on it. Yeah, so you sort of, it left you fearless in some sense. And and I know that you said that similarly, that like nothing frightens you about, you know, some of the, the issues that you're dealing with 
uh, can sometimes be really challenging when you're dealing with people with mental health problems and so on. It can be, and lots of, like you say, about anger, you know, you can see how this is carried through into the work that you do now, that nothing seems to phase you. Um, so, in Yeah, I love that Maya Angelou poem, Life Doesn't Frighten Me, um, and I teach that a lot. I did teach as a, as a year six student teacher um, because I really wanted children not to be frightened by life. Um, and, I mean, it, obviously it's a poem, but it is a fabulous poem. And I think, you know, when you, you can turn... I remember when I was little thinking... My shoes don't fit me. They've got holes in them. You know, you have to numb yourself to so many material, so much material discomfort, as well as kind of emotional and mental discomfort. And it does give you a resilience. And I, I think that's where I'm able to commune with my community because I, I do have that, you know, lived experience of you know, the challenges that they go through. And, you know, when, you know, even back in the early days when I had a lot of young lads raging or, you know, wrecking my room, there was never a sense in me that I had to meet them with an anger. It was very much wait for them to get to a place where they could use their executive functioning and I could have that conversation with them and then get them to rethink about things. But, you know, bring parents into that conversation in a way that was not dehumanising or blaming the parents but working with them together to to get to the root of where this anger was coming from. And having been an angry person and, and probably going to be one till the day I die, you know, I'm not frightened by life, but I'm not frightened by anger. And I think it's a really positive, it shows, you know, your, you know, shows that you care, you know, wh whatever it is you're getting angry about, you care about something. And that's really important. You're a living, sentient human being. Yeah, yeah. And anger, like intelligently expressed, like there's nothing exactly. more powerful, is there? There's nothing more powerful. Um, you don't want to just be raging, but when you can channel it, when you have the, the ability to do that. So so, so let's go back to, so, so you mentioned earlier that the grammar school was a whole other story. I don't know whether you want to get into that, but, but first of all, when I was asking you the other day about moments of significant learning, and it seems like one that arose around about the same time was you reading um, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, I don't even know where that came from, actually. I just picked it up. Um... Because I wasn't actually in primary school, I wasn't allowed to use the library um, because I wasn't deemed a reader. And, you know, so all of these barriers were so problematic for me and so damaging. So um, I don't know where it came from anyway, but it did. It resonated for me because it was about racism in the US and it articulated for me my lived experience and... I suddenly wanted to read that book and, you know, racism was such a daily experience for me. Um, it was either members of the public or, you know, children at school regularly being racist or, you know, my secondary school, the teachers were so explicitly racist. They would say, we really don't like the blacks in Moss Side, but, you know, Nahida, you're okay because you're Asian and you're quiet. And I would just be sitting there knowing that this was not right. Yeah, the grammar school was a real disappointment to me because I'd worked so hard to get there and it was a grammar school. So, you know, it was 
embodying the, the kind of fixed nature, nature of intelligence. So when I got there, I was kind of, you know, here's me thinking I've got my O-levels, I'm going in. Actually, I got there and I was just, I felt really unintelligent. I was treated very differently by the teachers. Um, I, you know, just couldn't relate to anybody. So yet again, I just had this sense of being this outsider. And I think that's probably another significant thing that that defines me is always being an outsider uh, looking in. But I think that has a really liberatory um, quality to it because I think um, when you've never felt like you've belonged, when you are an outsider, it gives you a way of being able to be quite brave, at the, brave in the way that you can look at the world and not being worried by... Uh, offending people because you don't belong to them anyway you're not part of any group so you can you know be bold I remember when I became a deputy the head said to me um you know there's a couple of things you can't do you've got to stop wearing so I was quite rebellious in the way I dressed I wore stripy tights and like you know things that also are a bit crazy and I remember him saying to me no you can't do that you know I really like the way you think and I think you're going to be a great asset but you can't do these things. And that just made me so angry. Just I thought, who is this guy? You know, tell me what I can. And I went to a meeting, which kind of summed it up. And he was there and there were four white men. And he said to me, go and make tea. And I was, I just said, no. And he looked at me in horror. He said, pardon? I said, no, make it yourself. And I think it was my first week of being a deputy. And then we all went. So I said, no, make it yourself. You can all make your own tea. Um, So we went to the room and there was this urn and it was, you know, the the kind of tension was just palpable. You know, everyone was really, (laughs) everyone was pouring themselves a cup of tea, but all these white men were really angry. And he didn't speak to me in the whole meeting my head. But the next morning he called me to his office and he was not happy. And it was like, what is your problem? Why would you not make a cup of tea? I said, well, why should I? You know, and that was, that's another conversation. Thank you. Yes, that's fascinating. Um, and and so, so to go back to the, to the significant learning thing, you painted a picture last week when we spoke about you sitting on this plastic sofa. It was quite a, a vivid image that you had this uh, early morning, being an early morning riser reading To Kill a Mockingbird and how you said that, it, that you were transformed, that you couldn't put it down. And you described, I wrote down what you said. It said that your lived experience, you realised, could be something that you could understand better through reading a book and that it made you realise that you could escape your material reality mm. through reading. Yeah, and I think I've always sort of, as a teacher, really wanted to kind of in a bit of the frere way, um, you know, get education to, to live, you know, give children that opportunity to transcend their material and live, um, kind of struggle into something that can be really very beautiful. So I think, you know, it really was, I mean, you know, life was materially very challenging for us. So there was no heating and, and things like that. And we lived up north, so it was cold and always raining. Um, but, you know, so when I would wake up in the morning, I, I was always cold and sitting on our plastic sofas was really uncomfortable. But 
that one experience of just getting lost in this book for the first time. I mean, it's quite late in life for that to happen, isn't it? Um, but, you know, the fact that it happened and it was about race and racism, suddenly I just thought, oh, you know, this doesn't just happen to me, it happens to other people. And that universality of kind of struggle kind of created, I think, the spark of wanting to be in solidarity with other people who were in struggle. So, you know, when I went to university, I was really, um, even though I was supposed to be studying science, I was far more involved in the politics of apartheid and third world first uh, looking at injustice because I wanted to understand my I wanted to depersonalize my experience I didn't just want it to be about me I wanted to understand that I was one voice in a chorus chorus of billions of people who were suffering from injustice and therefore you know a bit like we are they are the few we are the many so I think I learned very early on through that that books education were a way of connecting with kind of wider humanity um, to yeah reduce inequality so it was a really powerful learning moment for me and took me into a journey to you know yeah to be in solidarity with those others I it kind of drew the line for me of you know which side are you on the oppressor or the oppressed. And I just knew I was always oppressed, so I could never be an oppressor. So I've always yeah, sought to kind of... Well, and I think it's really important when you are as a, as a head teacher, and I'm not that uncomfortable with the word head teacher, I think, because I don't see it as being a power thing. I see it as a huge responsibility, um, a huge privilege to be always kind of looking and checking that we are, you know, working along the lines of our agreed kind of values and, and kind of purpose. So I don't have that. But, yeah, it just, yeah, I, th I think being in this position of power, it's really important that you know which side you're on you know, and I am part of the oppressed and always will be in solidarity with that. So I couldn't then be turned into a kind of agent of oppression. Yes. Yeah, I don't think there's any danger of that happening. <laughs> <laughs> we have to be mindful. Yeah, we do indeed. Well, power power's intoxicating, right? Like, it, like more than more than a few people have had their heads turned by the ability to uh, to make things happen. Okay, so so is there anything else? As you know, I'm really interested in this idea of significant learning. Yeah, I think the MA, I think I touched on that. I think working with Chris Watkins and so, you know, you go through university and then you hit and I was, you know, going and I, you know, the story of why I became a teacher is another story because it wasn't really on the cards really. I, I think I just wanted to join a, a revolutionary military <laughs> arm of probably the ANC but I ended up becoming a teacher um so yeah so when you get you know you come out of university I did really well I actually ended up getting a first and whatever um because at that point I really was ready and I was really thinking and actually I had a, another terrible bereavement at the time I lost my sister to to suicide and it was it was the, my final year and 
you know, yet again, there was just another reminder that the world is deeply unfair and it kind of, you know, just opened my eyes up to, because my sister was incredibly bright. I mean, she passed her 11 plus with flying colours and, you know, she was so bright that she was put in for these S levels back in the day. You would do an A level and an S level. And remember, she was doing this all without any support from family, so she really was a kind of amazing genius. But, you know, what I learned later through her loss was even with that cognitive sort of, because she was super intelligent, life and whatever was going on for her had its impact in her mental health. So you can't distract, you can't get distracted by an education that only focuses on outcomes. You really need to look at the whole child, the whole being, the whole organisation. Um, and that's kind of a really important part of my work. But so, yes, you come out of university, you become a teacher, and then you're supposed to know what you're doing in the classroom. I mean, it's insane, isn't it? I mean, you know, you really don't know. And especially if you go into teaching and you're not a parent, I think, you know, you you really have so much learning to do. So when I started my master's, it was so liberating to be able to Actually, I was very lucky. I was in a really great school. My school was very forward-thinking. I'm very committed to uh, in kind of reducing inequality. But nevertheless, the MA was really important for me in because it was about learning and reminding myself that I was a learner and going through my own kind of just then reminding me of re-looking at education and coming back to the purpose so yeah that was a significant moment and then learning about metacognition um you know was really significant for me because that's how I look very differently at what I was doing in the classroom and how I could work with children in a much more powerful way um because I think I had always paid attention to their emotional mental health and well-being um, I'd had that really terrible trauma um, in my final year at university, which kind of helped me to, to remind myself of the importance of a holistic approach to education, but I didn't really have the tools to um, kind of really make children school-proof in the way that metacognition can. Mm. So, yeah, that was very significant for me. Yeah, yeah, likewise. My master's was really, really pivotal, um, and I'm, I could not really sure why, but in a sense, it is a mass, it's like the mother of all metacognitive processes, isn't it? Where you just like you stick a, a stake in the ground and you circle around it and you look at it from lots of different angles, and you it's like just a point of reflection that is can be so liberating. Um, even when you know, like I've spoken about this before, but my, my my masters, like it didn't work. I did this dissertation about a thing that didn't work, and it felt horrible at the time. But I later came to realize that that was absolutely transformational in my own thinking. Thinking about why something didn't work—that's why it's so yeah. stupid when people say, "Oh, action research. There's no evidence that it that it raises attainment." It's like it's not. It's not how it works. It's like it's more of a slow burn thing than that. Um, and I know that that's also you mentioned earlier that the, you you really sort of sparked off uh, Lawrence Stenhouse. Yeah. So I mean, 
you know, he says it's teachers in the end who will change the world of the classroom. And I really, really believe that. Um, and he says they will do it by understanding it. Yes. Okay. So, and how do they understand it? They learn to to ask questions, to reflect, to essentially to research, to be action researchers. And I think that, that doing my master's, um, I was doing a lot of action research and it just, because it transformed who I was in the classroom, um, I thought, you know, as a deputy, I started to kind of help teachers to really reflect on their practice in a way that was non-judgmental, but very much my feedback um, was, you know, I, be, you know, understood the importance of that feedback being dialogic and also the importance of being vulnerable myself with teachers, so working alongside them and not coming in and looking at them and making that judgment. So having said that, I want to be really clear that you know, all power, it was Tony Benn who said to what I, you know, obviously he repeated somebody else, but he said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I would say there was, you know, headship because there was so much to do here. There were probably times when I probably was a bit more dictatorial than I would have liked um, because some of the kind of practices were so resistant or some of the people enacting the practices was so resistant to change that you know sometimes you just have to have those really difficult and um you know com horrible difficult conversations about whether or not you know we're a good fit and it, it's not something that I would do now because I think now I'm much more understanding that change takes time and the proof of your leadership is how well you can communicate what it is that needs to happen within the school and the, the purpose of what you're doing. So when you can communicate the purpose and when people kind of take that purpose on, then they develop a kind of resilience and a kind of determination to improve their own practice in a way that they don't if they don't see the purpose of why they're working in a school so you know I've, I think very differently about leadership now but I definitely did at times in the leadership here in the early days probably default back to probably not the best way of developing lead teacher lead teachers as um yeah as kind of their ongoing development. So, yeah, I'm very much committed to teachers as pra um, practitioner researchers um, because I think when they start asking those questions about their practice, it it's something that they will then kind of start to integrate almost metacognitively, like why is that child not understanding this? What else could I do to help them approach this? Why is that child not engaging? What might I do to change the conditions in the classroom that might kind of facilitate their engagement? So it becomes a much, it's a way of really developing inclusive practice in my mind. And which is very different from being evidence-informed. So I do believe in using evidence, but I think we need to look at evidence with more criticality um, because we need to ask ourselves, how was that evidence kind of, you know, where's, where are the claims come from? How was the evidence put together? What was the methodology? And I think for me it's far – if you're really looking at how to develop reflexive and reflective teachers – 
it's much more about developing teacher practitioner researchers as opposed to just being evidence informed i think that can actually kind of again unwittingly and i know this is unwitting you know as the mcpherson said it was unwitting racism that caused the the murder of stephen lawrence not being investigated properly um so this um unwittingly it actually makes teachers technicians again yeah and i it's not something that i want to promote yeah yeah and this is something that's very live at the moment isn't it there was that recent piece that um that, that gavin williamson said something at a, a recent speech to teachers or a union or something where he was like essentially like the science is in now we know the best way to teach is to sit them in rows and to just tell them stuff and to do lots of testing and retrieval and there is there is a real you know strong push towards seeing seeing teaching in this very very simple uh, way and it's really diminishing of of us as teachers and like you say it's not educating the whole child it's educating a very very narrow aspect of what a child is um and i completely agree with you and you know as you know we, we've got a shared passion for practitioner inquiry and we've been working on this the marg group the metacognition action research group with yeah. with shirley larkin from exeter university which was unfortunately interrupted by covid but we'll be picking that up again later this year hopefully yeah um but i i'm totally with you and stenhouse is um for people who aren't aware stenhouse was just a, a an education researcher but very influential and very much an advocate of teachers being involved in it in research rather than it being something that's just the domain of academics um, and he, he defined it as a systematic inquiry made public right so there's this like there's this exactly. there's this sharing element of this this is not something that just happens within your own classroom and that's partly why i made this praxis website and i'm working at the moment with people at cambridge to make an even better version of that so that we can join up all of this professional knowledge and get I did teacher inquiry so go on. i did respond to your um questionnaire and oh, i yeah. suggested it was practice for praxis for paradigm shift so if we're about shifting paradigms we need praxis because it is something you know my understanding of praxis is about you know wanting to make a difference it's about change it's about you know it's a kind of social justice idea um, for us here it's not just about you know reflecting on practice for you know i you know, just for the knowledge side, but it's actually kind of leveling out. It's about making things fairer. And yeah, so for us, that's how we see practice. It's about driving our social justice um, agenda. Mm, yes. And and that, that can only really make sense. Like, like I see the, the Lawrence Stenhouse, you know, practitioner inquiry stuff. It's like the other end of the telescope. Like at one end, you've got the Education Endowment Foundation, who are doing all these huge, very expensive, you know, scientific, quasi, quasi uh, experimental studies, like randomized controlled trials. And it's all like, you know, 50 schools in the control group and we'll do robust, you know, we'll throw money at this and we'll crunch the numbers and we'll figure out what works after all. 
And there's a whole range of, of questions that I have about that, which is probably a topic for another podcast. But even, even if randomized controlled trials could tell you what works, which they don't, but even if they could, that doesn't tell you anything about how to implement those ideas in your context. And I know that the EF has got some implementation guidance, but it's often it's lots, of, lots of mentions of fidelity in it. And it's about sort of, again, it's like teacher as technician. We just have to be like to exercise fidelity in implementing these ideas from on high and actually it totally overlooks like what's the, the messy end of the, the other end of the telescope which is like the individual practitioner who's figuring out what to do with this particular kid in this particular lesson in this particular point in time in this particular school you know and it's all context driven and none of that stuff is taken account of through these top-down models and you have to have agency and autonomy of individuals at the at the thick end at the business end of this um, and so like close to practice research is so so important um, and I, it's something that I've been banging the drum of for a long time um, but people don't you know people don't seem to sort of to to see the value in it to the extent that that, so, that some of us do um, so we'll be we'll be fighting that fight for some time to come I think I think so but I, I, and sadly they don't see how you know, teachers engaging in uh, practice inquiry become so enthused and, you know, enthusiastic about what is the best job in the world as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I think when you reduce teachers to technicians, it really dehumanises them and they don't exist in their entirety within that classroom because they are enacting an intervention and they, you know, they have to follow a plan. And teaching is so complex. It's about, it is about knowledge. It's, you know, um, in, in part about knowledge, but it's about so, so many other things. And it's, you know, being a teacher is such a complex art because if even if it's imparting knowledge, if that's what you are setting out to do, it's about creating the kind of learning conditions where every child can interact and engage in that learning with the kind of mental feelings of safety that that teacher creates those conditions, you know, and a teacher who isn't metacognitive, isn't self-aware, can't check in on that so you you you're just going to reproduce the same inequalities it's really not going to change because it takes something far more radical than one intervention to actually reduce inequality and you know that is our has to be our number one aim yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And it's doable, you know. I wrote, I did a did a talk recently about um it's called How to Close the Disadvantage Gap and like we know how to do this. That's something that I find really frustrating. Lots of the 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 uh, narratives that come out of the the EEF the, the sole purpose of the EEF their mission statement is to close, you know, the disadvantage gap. Um, but they often put out announcements saying the gap is going to get wider in the next five years and, you know, there's nothing essentially that we can do about it is almost what they're saying. And actually, you know, there are lots of schools that have closed this gap completely. Um, I don't know what the what the data is like currently at Rathfern, but I know that you've made huge headway uh, in, in this area in recent years. And we know what works. And so this is not a sort of throwing your hands up in the air and, oh, no, isn't the gap a difficult thing to, to fix? It's the mother of all implementation problems, um, but it's doable. Implementation science is a thing now. We can fix this. 
It's the thing that's so contradictory about it is I think that it comes from a deficit view of schools and leadership. I think the, the deficit is that the view is that, you know, you know, I think they that their view is that people like me and Colvan and others who are doing it, we're the exception, that not all people can be like us. Therefore, they need to give everybody else this universal kind of one-size-fits-all approach. But in doing that, they're never going to get more people who take risks and who develop their own kind of purpose in education mm. because they're so used to being told what that is. They're so used to following policy blindly without asking questions. So I think it's another example of just probably a kind of having a good intention, but the actual kind of consequence of it is just disastrous because, you know, there, there are some people that I speak to who still don't know what the EEF is, who still hear the word metacognition and think this is a really complex polysyllabic word that maybe we shouldn't be using in primary school. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, metacognition? What's that? That sounds complex. <laughs> um, and I said, well, you're actually doing some of it now because you're asking <laughs> me a question. Um, so, um, you know, I don't... I don't know... I th- it's, I, that, you know, I, I don't have the answers. The only thing I can say is that the way that we're trying to work with being constantly refining our approach and being really clear why we are doing what we are doing, and it's to reduce inequality, it's to make sure that our children leave as informed, compassionate citizens of the world who want to have a planet, who want the SDGs. You know, that kind of drives us, and I think... The only good thing about this new framework, if there is one, the Ofsted one, is that, you know, they talk about quality education as opposed to just outcomes. So, you know, when you actually start asking what is quality education, that is a question, you know, that lots of us have different answers for. But that's an opportunity for us to, you know, define it in our way as school leaders. For us, a quality education is having citizens of a democracy who will be critical and and have the knowledge to truly question, you know, the policies that are being enacted by government, which is, you know, which is how you will stop, you know, the kind of historical atrocities of the Holocaust and all these other things that have happened and far more recent ones like George Floyd happening because people will be asking these really important questions. So, you know, there are some positives in this uh, crazy neoliberal landscape um, because when Ofsted talks about quality of education, it requires us to have an intent. So what what is our intention? Why are we doing what we are doing? Well, we can interpret that in our own way Um, because I certainly know why we're doing what we're doing here. Yes. Yeah, I love that quote. So so last week I wrote something that you said that's sort of similar to what you were saying. You said, (laughs) uh, it was definitely a a sound-biteable sentence. You said, um, in this neoliberal Orwellian reality, we're still able to sow the seeds of liberation, um, which is a lovely summary, I think, of of what we're all about.
I think it's fair to say that we have slipped seamlessly into the rethinking education part of this conversation. Um, so let's sort of just um, uh, formalise that a little bit. I, I essentially ask six questions in this podcast. <laughs> and so we're up to question four. And it's essentially positives, challenges and fixes. Um, so let's take the positives first. What is there in the education system? It could be in your school. It could be more widely within the area. It could be in some school in Timbuktu that you've heard of. What is there that you see happening in the le- in in education that you think is really good that you would like to see more of? Well, actually, you know, I mean, I am pleased that now we're talking about quality of education and that Ofsted has you know, stop, has acknowledged that this focus only on performance has really skewed, um, you know, the curriculum, has skewed um, school uh, improvement approaches um, as be, to becoming, I mean, bizarrely, you know, their measurement of schools has caused you know, it's reduced schools to to act in this way. So schools really need to ask, you know, we kind of need to use this opportunity um, where they're rethinking the way they've been judging schools um, to help us, give us the courage to rethink what we're doing. So I think that's a really positive um, part of what's happening. Mm. And then I think we need to maintain that criticality when we, think about knowledge and that makes me think about their view of knowledge and cultural and social capital so i think it's although it was the tragic death of george floyd but it um has sparked a lot of really important conversations about race equality and has got people thinking more about decolonizing and i think that's a really important movement that's taking place and and gaining momentum um because, you know, this is long time, has been something that's been needing to happen for a long time. Earlier I talked about my experience of school and and feeling very othered all the time. And I think something we've worked really tirelessly on is promoting that kind of curriculum and pedagogy of belonging here. And part of that is decolonizing the curriculum. So making sure that you know, the migration story of this nation is something that we understand not just through the Romans and the Vikings, but more recent waves of immigration, which um, have resulted in me being here, for example, on mm. second generation. So it's really important. I, you know, I important to, it would have made such a difference to my kind of sense of safety and um, belonging if somebody had reminded me at school that World War Two and World War One was also fought by Indian soldiers, of which I have heritage, Indian heritage. Um, you know, and it's these elements of our curriculum that I think will not only help people like me and children, you know, the people like me, my children to feel that they belong, but also help white um you know, British children to understand why their nation is multicultural and to understand the rights of those of us that are here to be here, even 
I think anybody, I mean, I believe in freedom of movement, okay? I, I believe in the UN's, you know, CRC, we're a rights-respecting school, so every child, wherever they are, has a right to an education, whether or not they've got a British passport or not. But nevertheless, understanding why Britain is what it is is an important movement happening uh, that is, I hope, will get some, well, the Welsh government have taken this up, so they've integrated that. Um, so why not the British English government? So I'm, I'm really hopeful that that will happen. Mm. Can, can you explain a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing around decolonising the curriculum and what that has looked like in terms of curriculum planning at Rathfern? So we've been decolonising for quite some time. Um, so that's very much not only kind of understand the migration story, but also, you know, for us, it's about reframing, you know, education is giving children the opportunity. It's not indoctrinating, but giving them the opportunity to look at things differently. So if you only present them with a Eurocentric view of the world, um, which doesn't include, say, the Islamic golden age of Islam, you don't help them reframe their view of, you know, the current view of Islam is, you know, most Muslims are terrorists. They want to bomb the world. Bomb the world. You know, how can you help people have a different perspective on this? Well, you know, one way we do it is that we, you know, we celebrate sort of just what the Islamic civilization gave and how the Islamic civilization, the golden age of Islam, actually preceded the Renaissance and the kind of kind of growth of, of ideas and science in Europe. So that's one way of doing it. So we compare Baghdad with Europe at the same time. We also, um, when we look at Benin, we also, we start off with Benin. So we very much are reframing children's views of Africa as kind of this kind of part of the world, time in history where Benin was this amazing civilization, so well organized, so well ordered, um, nothing like it had, was known in Europe. But then we we move on to kind of the Tudors and we start to re-look at those voyages of discovery as actually uh, times of kind of the beginning of colonialization and imperialism because actually there was a desire to look at the, the world of Benin and, and to take control of its riches in a way that was the roots of capitalism and and gave this nation and Europe the the money and the wealth to drive the Industrial Revolution. So, you know, we're really looking at things in quite a very different way. But we also, very important to us is, um, and I'll sh is kind of resistance. So I mentioned earlier that part of the reason that I was able to uh, kind of become a teacher or, or get a ed decent education was because I resisted what people were telling me about myself. So resistance is a really important part of uh, coming alive as a human being. Um, and so sometimes people see ch children being angry as, you know, terrible. But I, I often talk to children about this is resistance. You're resisting something. What are you resisting? Resistance can be amazing. It can change the world, you know. But, you know, think about it in this, this way. So we look at resistance to racism in this nation. So we don't look at um, just focus on the civil rights movement in America, which is important, but we look at the Bristol bus boycott, the Battle of Lewisham, obviously. Um, we look at um, 
Doreen Lawrence as a significant individual. Um, we look at the Notting Hill Carnival that came out of the race riots after the murder of Kelso Colcrane. So, you know, we're feeding into our curriculum and our children's experience um, that in this country people stood up against um, racism, not just after Black Lives Matters, but way back in history of this country. Mm. Thank you very much. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. This is urgent and, and necessary work that's taking place, and it's great that it's happening. And it's obviously, you know, quite controversial. It's, this is quite a heated topic and you know the whole sort of like should we be teaching this canon of dead white males and all that stuff um, and and linking back to what you were talking about earlier about the, you know the importance the significance of you finding yourself being in the in the visible majority and what a transformation or you were talking about it almost as like this sort of transcendent moment of, of release or realization or something and it's hard if you if you like i am a white male and i'm in a white majority country and it's hard to understand what the significance of being in a minority is psychologically and so of course there's a there's an aspect of this which is about representation and being able to see yourself in what you're learning about but but it's not just about that like it's just no. it's just a more well-rounded truthful you know education right I, I would have loved to have learned about the golden age of islam or benin and all these things that you're talking about about what was happening in baghdad pre-renaissance this is just fascinating stuff like it's it's uh, it's so so important that this that this work takes place, and I know you've been doing some work. So you you, you spoke to the chartered college a while ago about this didn't you yeah and i mean for me it all comes back to justice so whether that's class justice race justice gender justice it really is important it just feels to me as if you know we have to have a tragic murder another tragic murder for us to kind of be forced to kind of into this uncomfortable space because it is uncomfortable it's also you know I, for me, it is about diversity, but it's it's way more than that. It's about inequity because people of colour can enact injustice, and we see that all over the world. So, and I enact whiteness because I emulated whiteness. I I remember at school hating my name and and wanting to be called Janet, and I just hated feeling so different to everybody else. Um, so you know these. Default behaviours are things that met being metacognitive helps me to monitor and manage in myself as well. So Franz Fanon, um, who talks about, you know, the white um, white mask, blackface white mask sort of concept of the post-colonial construct, you know, I so much see myself in it. And with my older son, I, I remember when he was younger, he would often call me out when I was enacting whiteness, he would say that I would talk a different way when I was with different people. He would kind of stereotype me in a quite a humorous way that helped me to, to kind of see myself doing things that, you know, I probably wouldn't have realised if he hadn't disrupted that. I think we have to do a lot of disruption in education uh, and interruption all the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I... there is. Sorry, just to say, there is a place for knowledge, you know. So, you know, I like the way Michael Young talks about, you know, 
you know, we do, you know, we need to question where this knowledge comes from just because it is, you know, it doesn't mean it's truth, truthful knowledge, but, you know, decolonizing the curriculum helps you look at the knowledge even of the canon in a different way. So there's a place for, you know, knowing certain information, but not at the expense of the wider picture of where that information came from or how it sits alongside other knowledge. Um, because otherwise you will never reduce inequality. You will never rid schools of that kind of white privilege that will be at the root of race inequality and that default behaviour within the pedagogical practices that might be great pedagogical practices but are being, act being enacted with this biased behaviour. So... Mm. Yeah, yeah, yes. I wonder about the, the, the language of it. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this. There's something about the phrase decolonizing the curriculum that, that A, it sort of, it seems to suggest that it was colonized, right, in the way that Commonwealth countries were colonized. And I'm not sure that it was in, the, in that sense. It's not like we had this sort of globally equally represented curriculum that was sort of colonized in that same way. And it seems like it just seems like it's more like broadening the curriculum. You know, I don't know about I don't I just don't really understand what the actual word decolonizing means okay. in, in this in this context. And it also it seems to sort of to get people's backs up to an extent. And and that might not be a bad thing, but it also maybe maybe sort of strategically we end up with things like this this race commission report that's just come out which is sort of like a you know a, a doubling down of saying like there's nothing to see here sort of thing and there's no need to decolonize the curriculum i just wonder about mm. about what your thoughts are on that yeah i think it's a really important question and it's one that i keep asking myself um because when you say decolonizing, it feels really uncomfortable. If you say diversifying, it it kind of placates people. And I don't really think I want to placate. And my uh, view very much is the reason it's decolonizing is because it links to kind of my malleable intelligence and metacognition and moral purpose, because colonization was about dehumanization um, and if we don't decolonize, we will continue to dehumanize, but with a, in a, in a, with a diversified curriculum. So you may have more kind of, this is about the curriculum and the pedagogy for me. It is a political act. It's about re, it's about power and the power imbalance of colonization. And it's about re, calibrating that power imbalance so that we recognize the root of that historical um, epoch as one of, you know, crude exploitation um, that was maybe enacted through the pedagogies rather than the curriculum earlier. So for me, it's not just the curriculum that needs to be colonized, it's also pedagogy. And I think it it's not just decolonizing, it's everything else. So that's one element of it, because that really gets to the heart about addressing the race inequality. But we've still got class inequality and we've got gender. So it's one part and it's not binary. You don't do that and then not do something else. It's it's a, a part, a multi-pronged approach, I think, to getting social justice mm. happening because you know there's other elements of social justice for me are around you know coming challenging 
kind of the myth of meritocracy, about the marketization of education. They're, for me, all parts of the way we perpetuate inequality. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's a very persuasive answer. I was, I think some more about that. And obviously, like, it's not up to me, is it? It doesn't matter what I think. Um, it's about, not up to me either. Yeah. 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 Of course. And I may change my mind. I would hope that I would keep open to. But for me, you know, it's my gut instinct with what colonization has done and how it. And it's and it's not gone. I mean, you know, modern day globalization is a form of colonization. You know, the modern day, I mean, okay, it's been disrupted with COVID, but the way, you know, we've transported our call centers to India and we're using, you know, really highly skilled graduates to answer phones to rip people off in this country is another kind of machination of of colonization uh, in a way and also colonization can be you know it's this post-colonial construct so you know brown black capitalists need to be decolonized it's not always a race issue though it is a race issue if you know what I mean mm -hmm. yeah yeah Yes. Um, okay. And so, so linked to this, I know that we we spoke about unconscious bias earlier, as it as it relates to you know like teachers and having certain attitudes around what what young people can and can't achieve. But I know that you um, have, have, we've spoken before about unconscious bias as it plays out just in the in the way that it's usually referred to in terms of race. Um, I wonder if um, if you can expand on on your your sort of maybe through your own personal experience, your experience of how unconscious bias plays out in schools or maybe just thinking about the issue on a, on a more general level i mean this is why for me it's the complexity of teaching and learning it comes into play so you know people who come into the educational space with a real really full sense of themselves so they emotionally and mentally psychologically are very secure because they come from that kind of home where they've been given those tools to operate probably probably have greater resilience to the bias so you know being reflective of myself I think I was a very vulnerable learner I you know very much in tune with my community not having those sort of that kind of life experience that gives you that kind of those sharp elbows that you often see um, middle-class children do. So you are really at the behest of people who can enact their power through, um, as you say, it's not so crude anymore. It's through setting of children. It's through the way teachers talk about and with parents from disadvantaged and uh, minority ethnic communities and it's um, you know just generally how teachers will respond to children's um, not being able to understand or how uh, leaders may respond to teachers of color or of a certain class so all of that bias is being enacted out in school improvement within the pedagogy. And, it, you know, we need to look at what that does. It basically says that somebody from a certain race or class cannot transform or grow or develop in the same way that a middle class person who isn't brown can. And that's hugely 
exhausting to navigate on a daily basis when you're a person of color and, and class that you just have to live with this kind of you know being constantly othered in a space which is meant to be inclusive it's um it's exhausting i think um but it is something you get used to being on the battleground with and just dealing with but it kind of adds to the anger that you feel which is why it's really important to not dismiss anger but to to begin to understand where it's coming from and how the the system perpetuates and escalates the anger through not tackling that bias yes yeah yeah i can see and i've noticed a lot of people talking about that feeling of exhaustion in particular in relation to this to this race this race commission report that's just come out where people are just thinking oh i can't just keep fighting this and people have been using this term gaslighting which is sort of like the word of the year but it seems to be pretty fairly used in this case that it's just like saying there's not a problem here and if you think it is it's like sort of you know victim blaming essentially that that you're not sort of resilient enough if you think that you're being um you know unconsciously uh, treated differently or consciously yeah i think it shows a gross lack of um kind of dealing with the evidence okay so the evidence actually tells us that these two if we want to go for evidence just look at the outcomes for certain student groups and okay you might then say oh you know there are some ethnic minority groups that do actually do very well in the system and that's true um but actually generally when you put race and class together they don't do very well so yes you can take single out groups so I remember when I became the, the head here, when I was challenging some things, you know, I was accused of being racist against um, certain groups. And because assumptions were made about my background as an Asian woman that I, you know, came from a privileged background and therefore I didn't understand the lived experience when I was, you know, and it's just... Yeah, it's hugely frustrating uh, that we have this report, but not at all surprising. We could have predicted it. Critical race theory would have predicted it, that, you know, when things are getting really difficult, um, the system will react in this way. Mm. So I'm not surprised by it. Um, and I think, if anything, it reminds me of just how you know how hard this struggle is and how much we need to keep on uh, challenging and fighting and being committed to social justice because this is going to happen over and over again yeah. um the system is not going to stand up and say yes i am this and i'm going to change no the system will protect itself through any means possible to preserve its privilege yeah yeah that, including using black people Indeed, as happened in this case, it seems. Um, yeah, there was a brilliant takedown of that report. Ash Sarka um, did a video for Double Down News yesterday, which I don't, okay, know, if, I don't I know if you've seen it. I'll, I'll, I haven't. I'll send you a link. It's, I don't, yes, if, please. If you, if, you, if you contribute to Double Down News, then you get stuff. I'm not, I think it's on a private YouTube thing. Anyway, I'll send it to you. And I'll My put, husband does, so we'll get it. Okay, I'll, get it. I'll put it in the show notes as well because it's, it's, uh, it's, really, it's really worth watching. Um, okay, so... so the, we're in the positives here. So we had a, we're like the, the, this idea 
that Ofsted is recognising the quality of education goes beyond exams is is a, a positive. Um, and this this whole movement of decolonising the curriculum, if we, look, we talked about how problematic and challenging and exhausting it is, but the fact that it is happening and that it is gaining such traction and that it is so squarely in so many people's sites, you know, you see this continually playing out um, online. And, and so it seems to be, you know, broadly a good thing, although it's, you know, difficult, challenging work, that this is taking much more of a central place, you know, largely empowered by, by the BLM um, and people around that. So is there anything else that you have in the positives list? I guess, um, you know, the fact that we are... You know, we talk more about research now than we ever did when I first started teaching. So I think whilst we have this obsession with evidence and the evidence we're looking for has to be on children's outcomes, I think maybe the change to Ofsted may have an impact on the EEF and its approach um, because Ofsted's looking uh, not just at outcomes. Um, so that might have some impact on the way that um, the EF operates. Um, and I think there are moves within the EF to, despite, you know, these, this huge amount of money spent on random control trials, you know, I think there's the Great Teaching Toolkit, which I don't know you've looked at, um, you know, which I think has got some really promising um, elements to it, um, so this, you know, that's something positive that teachers can look at um, to help and guide us into getting the kind of pedagogy, the pedagogy as opposed to, as opposed to the kind of vision for schools. Um, I think school leaders still need to be asking themselves why, why, why are we doing what we're doing? So that hasn't changed. I think. Yeah, I, th I think that's probably it on the positives. Okay, um, thank you. Um, let's move to challenges then. What do you see as being the main challenges that we face? Okay, inequality, which, you know, is and will, you know, continue to be um, kind of, you know, so systemic um, and then made further propounded when we get the reports that you you mentioned which take us back but mustn't stop us so i think you know the rising inequality and what's happened with covid and how we navigate uh kind of the growing inequality that's a, a huge problem and challenge for educators um that we are all grappling with um but making sure you know there's some I guess coming back to because you can't talk about problems without talking about solutions because otherwise I wouldn't be a school leader. So, you know, it's very much about looking at that inequality, but making sure we are still mindful of how we get children back into the space of learning by paying attention to their mental health and well-being. And I'm really pleased that many schools are focusing on that. So that's another positive. I think the kind of focus on mental health and well-being for children and staff is really positive um, movement because yeah. that will stop us moving back to that reductive kind of teaching, treating children like, you know, empty vessels and teachers like workhorses to get results. So that's a really positive. 
Another problem, um, so inequality, yep. whether that's class, race, is a problem that we, I think, will always be there, I think, as long as, you know, I alluded to this earlier, I don't, just as I do not believe we will get environmental justice in the current economic system, I just think it's fundamentally incompatible. I think inequality of outcome for class and race is unlikely to happen in our political kind of paradigm. So I think yeah, I'm hoping that we can shift that. It's interesting how that, that language is reflected in the SDGs, isn't it? Because it says like one of them, for example, is no poverty and zero hunger and stuff. Um, and then the inequalities one, it says reduced inequalities, right? So it seems like it's there's an acceptance that this is always going to be with us. And of course, you know, like, I mean, you're never going to have a completely homogenous world. I don't even know what such a thing could look like. Um, so maybe it's just a reflection of that reality, but it does, compared with some of the other language, it does seem like it's a little bit less ambitious <laughs> than, yeah. than some of the others. I think there's an acknowledgement of the kind of global economic systems that have a vested interest in perpetuating it. But this is why metacognition and, you know, purpose and malleable intelligence are so important. So our most disadvantaged children who are most likely to come to school believing that they're not intelligent, you know, with our approach will be liberated by schools that, you know, demonise them because they're just not working hard enough. You know, that's the whole kind of rationale between of meritocracy. You know, if you just work harder, you know, you can make it. And for me, that's a really pernicious myth. And it really, really is one that schools and, and politicians should work harder at debunking um, because it's so corrosive, it's so toxic, it so dehumanises the most vulnerable members of our society, um, and it's, you know, deeply unjust. So for me, that's a real problem, mm. meritocracy. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and linked to this, you, you sent me, I love how you send me little videos and stuff. Uh, the, the, the piece from Danny Dawling, uh, the geography professor, who sort of talks about how how inequality is so intertwined with environmental problems that we see that actually disproportionately it's like the top 1% who you know cause the most cause the most damage to the environment so then the the more the more unequal society is the more damaging it is to the environment but why don't we talk about this why are these ideas not mainstream you know because actually what we want to perpetuate is that we all want to be in that 1% that shouldn't be the desirable outcome for humanity, you know, because actually the desirable outcome for humanity should be living in tune with the planet. And the planet has got limits, you know, so we actually owe it to children to say the answer isn't becoming rich because rich people actually behave in this way. Um, you know, yes, being materially comfortable is really important for everybody and we can do it. Um, so, yeah, absolutely for me, you know, the, again, coming back to the SDGs is sort of, you know, helping children to understand that reducing inequalities is much more likely to help us to get environmental justice. So it's kind of, you know, even if you can't care about humanity, you might care about the planet enough to want to consume less. Mm, yeah, yeah. 
Yes, and I'm happy, by the way, to take these, although I sort of talk about challenges and then fixes, it makes sense to talk about the solutions because, like you say, they're sort of intertwined around the the, the problems. Um, And so in terms of inequality, I mean, lots of the stuff that we've been talking about already today is all about this, right? The decolonization stuff um, and the the moral purpose and metacognition and malleable intelligence and changing people's beliefs and so on. Um, In terms of like just like what it looks like in, in classroom practice, what would you say if you had to sort of to pinpoint um let's say two or three sort of specific policies or practices that 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 you have enacted or seen enacted within Rathfern that have that have been effective in closing those those uh those outcomes in terms of disadvantage and inequality okay so it's working with teachers so very much in line with what Colvan was talking about so that commitment to working with teachers because teachers enact the pedagogies in the classroom. So without teachers having that moral purpose to reduce those inequalities, they're not going to have that drive to resist those default practices. So that's kind of key to our work. But then within the classroom, giving children that kind of language of learning, but also using success criteria in in a metacognitive sense. So, you know, being able to plan, monitor, and kind of control your learning is really that whole metacognitive cycle really works around understanding the importance of of kind of creating success criteria with children and within classroom practice, but more in line with metacognition. Um, Children and adults having that language of learning is really key. Um, and having that commitment to malleable intelligence helps children to understand that when things are tricky, they have an, a number of internal resources that help them not shut down in that situation. There's something we, we've talked, I think one of the first things I, I said as a head was, you know, what I really hope we will all appreciate better at the end of this year is that learning is uncomfortable you know and so that's pretty much the hallmark of our kind of so entering that kind of zone of discomfort is something that we believe is a really desirable state for teachers and children and it isn't something that we shy away from and that's also morally so you know Engaging with the SDGs is is actually uncomfortable because it's far easier to peddle the myth that everyone can become a celebrity and, you know, everyone can just do, be and become whatever they want and then go on to be the six, you know, actually to, to interrupt that and say, well, what really, what is success for, for me, for you, for our class, for our community, for our planet is kind of interrupting things. So that's a really important part of how we set out to plan our curriculum for opportunities to interrupt and then recalibrate and reframe the way that we're thinking to become these informed citizens. Um, But pedagogically, it's about teachers having the moral purpose, which gives them the kind of focus in the classroom to, to not even unwittingly kind of ability group. So we do no ability grouping here. We don't use the word ability. Uh, we talk about confidence. Um, so we, my teachers are regularly um, kind of 
quite shocked when they hear people in a very kind of matter of fact saying high ability, low ability, medium ability. They say to me, what's that? You know, it's so far from the world of their life, lived experience as a teacher that they really find it repugnant. Um, so that's really feels very kind of, I feel really sort of, I feel really proud of that. Yeah, yeah, so you should. And it is incredible how widespread that is when you hear teachers, so especially at primary, saying my middles and my lowers. And, you know, it's like it's really embedded in the way that the that, that teachers are trained. And I'm starting to see now, so so in terms of just the practicalities of that, you were talking about moral purpose earlier, and that almost sounds like it's quite an abstract idea. It's like, yes, we have a moral sense of purpose, but it's like, how? what is morality? Into like, how, does that, how does that look? But I can see see now that you could like that, that making the moral purpose explicit and especially like at the hiring stage <laughs> um that you're making clear that this is something that is driven by the teacher so it's, this is not some sort of top-down diktat that or policy that they need to show fidelity to out of you know being a good technician or professional it's like it's about harnessing the power of human agency and also anger like you were talking about earlier you know like using that anger as an energy and you know for me that's so important James because when I see teachers that come here I really want them to fall in love with the craft and pedagogy and purpose of teaching so that they become leaders one day if that's what they choose with that clarity of purpose and not because they want to climb some career ladder. You know, for me, I I really, I don't know how I became a head teacher. It was definitely not on the cards for me um, at all. I did not come in with that sense of I will be ever, not in a million years. If anyone had said to me, what do you want to be? It was never anything like this. So, you know, I am pretty much a reluctant leader in that sense, Um and and that's important because it keeps because I I so love what happens in the classroom and I so love how we you know text can transform and and you know the curriculum can develop that kind of love that belonging that kind of desire to enact the the goals in a scientific way or a kind of humanitarian way that I don't want to lose that class you know, that focus of the from the classroom. I don't want to be divorced from that and um, very much resonated with what Corvan said about being still in the classroom, being very much working alongside teachers to um, plan kind of the curriculum that does that interrupting of teach of the of thinking and um, being as a human being. And you know, a lot of my teachers when they join us, they have that kind of passion actually for social justice but not necessarily environmental justice and they grow with that so you know we talk a lot about some of the thing we do here around you know the community garden and, and other projects we've got is around helping everybody understand that you know to slow down and things don't happen overnight and growing plants takes time and you know that's not a bad thing because the zeitgeist is you know, quick fix, quick quick fix, quick turnaround, quick this, you know, get what I want now. And 
And we're trying to interrupt all of that in quite a skillful way by doing things differently. Yes. <laughs> yes. Sorry. That's all right. And it's not a COVID cough. <laughs> and you seem to be uh, to be achieving some some notable success in this area, um, which is great. And I know that you're now very in- engaged with the wider community of schools in in Lewisham. Yeah, we're running um, a thirty school project. Um, called Your Voice Can Change the World, and that is linked with 30 schools in Pumalanga in South Africa. So I mentioned earlier that actually a significant moment for me also in my life, I'm not sure I directly mentioned it, was um, learning about apartheid because and when I learned about apartheid, that was a kind of really grotesque explicit kind of magnified version of my daily experience and again that helped me reframe my injustice into this wider global struggle and so apartheid has always been a very and the kind of post-apartheid the 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 journey to uh, dismantle apartheid, which I was very involved in, in, you know, small way. I was a nonstop picketer. It's how I met my husband. We were both nonstop picketers, um, sort of protesting. So being part of a movement that, you know, then saw a real kind of political change. So South Africa has been really always close to my heart. And when I kind of, I've always been against these um, deficit kind of global um, exchanges, because I've always thought it's this charity idea that we're going to tell you in South, a poor country how to do things. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I just don't want to do this. feels like another version of colonialism. So, yeah. like, a year ago when I did it, um, created a project called Your Voice. No, The World Has Enough for Everyone's Need, Not Greed. That was that project. And that was with three schools in Lewisham and three schools in Pumalanga. And that's how those schools adopted the SDGs. So all of the schools now in Pumalanga have adopted the Sustainable Development Goals through the work that happened a year ago, two years ago, and now 30 schools have officially adopted them. So, yeah, we're we're driving the SDGs through Lewisham schools now. Amazing. That's great to hear. Um, so th- I know that your your twins are outside, and we should yes. l- enjoy, let you enjoy some of your Easter holiday. Is there anything else in the in the challenges and solutions uh, column that you sort of have in mind that you wanted to talk about? Um, I you know I said I started off this conversation with I'm really not sure why I'm here, um, but you know. If, if anything, I, I would say to, you know, to stay, to keep asking ourselves why we are doing what we are doing so that we don't, you know, we steer away from being leaders that, I mean, you wouldn't do that, James, because you're just, you know, you're a, a, a square, I mean, the whole way that you've kind of put, brought people together is, is like nothing short of revolutionary in itself. But, you know, you're, so I don't know what more I can add because people are all sentient. But, you know, I want the really important part of the way I approach things is that, that you know, we do want to be evidence informed, but we also should know that evidence can be contested and should be contested. And that criticality is a really important part of, you know, Frere, Frere said reading is not just 
learning to read is not reading the word, it's reading the world. Yeah. And a really important part of our approach is reading the world around injustice, but reading the world of research as well. And so saying, you know, I, you know, this, it needs to be contested and being critical even of the findings of the, of the EEF and others. And, you know, really working and being brave as a leader to encourage teachers to to ask questions and become researchers within their classroom, but never lose sight of their purpose, I guess. And, you know, the whole journey Raffan has been on and continues to be on with our kind of, you know, our strap line actually is uh, where everyone learns to learn. You know, that's what we believe in because we believe learning is so much more than passing exams. It's about asking these questions of the world, of ourselves, who we are and how we are. Um, and metacognition, in my view, is the closest we're going to get developing children's language of learning, their ability to be able to plan, monitor and regulate themselves as learners, the closest we're going to get to that. Yes. It's so lovely to to hear you sort of using that language of learning to learn because it, it feels to me that that's very much what, what you're about. Um, and obviously, you know, that's been the, the focus of my work in, in recent years. And just to close, um, it's, you know, we talked earlier about you sort of being quite a fearless person, partly because of the, the you know, the life experiences that you've had. Um, and it seems like that, like so, at the end of our book, "Fear is the Mind Killer," we identified six antidotes to fear, um, and they are safety, confidence, experience, knowledge, closing the gap, and courageous leadership. Um, and it just seems that that Rathfern embodies all six of those, you know, and it really feels like like your young people are going to be, you know, just like taking the world by the scruff of the neck. And that lovely thing that you that you sent me recently, the the opera that you were involved in, it was such a powerful thing. I don't know if that, is that available that we could link to as well in the show notes so that people can see. Would you mind to just explain a little bit about how that came about? Yeah, so um, I really wanted the children. So, you know, I... A little secret of mine is that I love opera. And um, actually, my family used to call me the singing nun, uh, which is bizarre because <laughs> we're Muslims. But we didn't have, um, you know, access to much music. So I used to bring home the hymn books because it was Christian school. And so I was always singing them like a mad opera singer. <laughs> there was a way of dealing with it. So, you know, I've always had this. And then as I got older, I learned about opera and so I thought, well, you know, well, you know, but I want to do this in a really creative way and it would be really great the children have been in lockdown. Let's kind of look at a kind of different way of looking at opera to make sense of the lockdown experience for our year six children. So I got, I was speaking to this guy who writes opera um, and he actually trained the children, had this amazing experience where they were working online with this opera singer. I think she was in Holland and they were having live direct uh, lessons, but they created their opera. So they wrote it, they put it together and it's a very unconventional opera 
but it actually incorporates experience, the feeling of transition, mm. leaving the school, but also of Black Lives Matters and of many other thoughts. So it, it's fairly chaotic, actually, um, but powerful, I would say, uh, opera. So, and the children wrote it. So what more do we want? Yeah, it was, it's very moving. It's an absolutely beautiful piece of work and really, really well shot because it's not easy to shoot things when the kids are in school, you know, there's like classrooms in the background and they're wearing uniforms and it's sort of, it's hard to make something look really, really visually arresting, but it was visually arresting and the spoken word in there, the, the, they say spoken using the, the student's own words. So that's a, that's a wonderful piece of work. Um, so yes, well, I know you said at the start of this conversation that you were like, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if I've got anything that people will be interested to hear, but I don't think that there's any doubt that you know that that people will be interested to 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 listen to this conversation. I think that you are uh, you'll probably find this really awkward to listen to, but I just think that you're a very inspirational person. You know, you're like a, a an incredible example of what courageous moral leadership looks like and I know that I'm not alone in thinking that but I'm, but I'm not going to embarrass you with any any further flattery other than to just say thank you very much indeed for sharing your morning or afternoon now with me mm -hmm. and uh, I hope that you enjoy the rest of your day and your Easter holidays and get some well-earned rest my goodness what a, what a few years it's been Ah, oh, absolutely. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, I, as I, mean, I said earlier that I think the whole Rethinking Education podcast is is so fantastic. And, you know, I've told so many people to listen because although the podcasts are very, you know, they're quite long and you really get a sense of who people are through listening and much more than what they do, but kind of why they do the things they do and how they've come to uh, where what they're doing and how they're going to go on to do things. So <clears throat> I just want to thank you for putting together this coalition of um, very different people, but also really people who are rethinking things in really powerful ways. And, and I think what you're doing is really powerful. So thank you very much, James. Times Thank you.